Canada Conversations is brought to you by Deloitte Canada, helping you navigate the complex challenges your company faces through recovery and enabling you to thrive in the new normal. To learn more, visit Deloitte.ca. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Automotive News Canada Conversations. I'm your host, Greg Layson, the digital and mobile editor here at Automotive News Canada. My guest today is one of this country's foremost economists. With more than 25 years of experience in economic analysis and forecasting, he's an expert on trade and exports. And his appearance on the podcast is perfect timing, considering the United States-Mexico-Canada Agreement, or USMCA, went into effect July 1st. He also has a few thoughts and forecasts about the current pandemic and how it might affect the auto industry in Canada. So settle in as we get ready to talk USMCA, or is it Kuzma, and COVID-19 with Peter Hall, the Vice President and Chief Economist at Export Development Canada, on this episode of Automotive News Canada Conversations. Peter, thanks for joining me on the show today. It's great to join you, Greg. Glad to have you. Um, USMCA has now gone into effect. July 1st was the day. Um, what are your general thoughts on how the deal will affect Canada's auto industry in particular? Well, that's a great question, uh, Greg. Everybody uh, really doesn't know what uh, this new soup tastes like until you actually um, uh, take your first bite. Um, but uh, there has been a lot of advanced warning on how to get ready for uh, for that experience. Uh, really, we're looking at um, a, a new burden of compliance. Uh, let's say that that you know, in a in a grand sense, is uh, what maybe the uh, auto producers and parts makers should have been focusing on over these COVID months when there wasn't a whole lot else going on. And so it's it's a question of um, making sure that certifications are carried over from NAFTA to CUSMA and um, uh, ensuring that the lights can stay on. I mean, that's that's pretty fundamental uh, here. Thankfully, we have a first six months where we have a principle of maximum flexibility. So there is going to be some grace. Uh, it, it's a pretty subjective thing. It's hard to know exactly how that principle is going to be applied. Um, and then there's also phase in that can be counted on. Uh, so, you know, it's not abrupt in terms of subscribing to uh, the finer points of North American content and what have you. And and so that's what I would say. It's just there's been a need for a lot of due diligence on how this is going to affect individual firms or perhaps seeking counsel from those who have been studying these things for quite some time. One of the most talked about changes in the standardization of this trade agreement is the minimum wage of $16 per hour. Um, It was developed to level the playing field with Mexico, uh, forcing companies to increase wages there. But will it increase wages here in Canada and therefore make this country less competitive than before? I just wonder how that $16 affects Canada. We know how it's going to affect Mexico. The wages will go up there. But what does it do to Canada and Canadian competition, are are we still competitive? I'm not sure that um, a $16 marker is, let's say, as as, um, effectual inside of the economy as, let's say, minimum wage legislation. So when we see a, a change in minimum wages, well, that ricochets through the industry because 
if the minimum goes up, well, that's what you're paying all of your entry-level people, somebody who is earning that beforehand and was a cut above somebody at entry level is now not happy. And so you see a cascading up of those wage increases right through the industry. Well, I heard far more complaints about that uh, in the auto sector than I heard about, um, about this particular clause. I think that the perspective is really uh, on the Mexican side. How will that affect things there? Now, we've got tier ones and others that have supply chains in Mexico and they were depending to some extent on the change or the differential in wages. And I believe that that is what's going to affect the structure more than anything else. Now, if we're looking at sort of intra-company differentials and somebody saying, hey, wait a minute, you know, that person was way down the ladder from me who was working in Mexico there, all of a sudden, you know, they've had to change and a certain portion of our workers have now got to earn that $16 an hour down in Mexico. How is that affecting us up here? And, you know, do we deserve a relative wage adjustment as a result of that? That's how I can see it manifesting itself inside of companies. It's, it's it'd be sort of an intra-company battle. But I don't know that actually drawing the line is going to have you know, an across-the-board effect either in the United States or here in Canada, uh, because what's I think what predominates really is our own minimum wage markers. We sort of hear that the idea is to get more investment in Canada, and I just wonder if this new agreement will, in any way, entice automakers to come to. Ontario, which is traditionally, obviously, our, our hotbed of auto manufacturing, is the idea of landing new manufacturing investment, um, it, does that even exist anymore, or is that over, and this is just about maintaining what we uh, currently have under the agreement? Well, it's going to be really muddy waters over the next little while, Greg, because um, COVID has its own impact on all of this. Everybody's all of a sudden worried about supply chain security. And whereas, you know, that might affect companies that are more internationally focused. Uh, so if you have a supply chain that spans not just the United States and Mexico, but you've got it in Southeast Asia or over in China or elsewhere, um, there has been talk that the pandemic really has people looking at more of a nearshoring or a reshoring. And the, the term glocalization has come back into the vernacular uh, here. It's, um, it's a question of securing those supply chains. So, you know, initially some of the conversation around moving from uh, NAFTA to CUSMA or USMCA is uh, or was, oh goodness, you know, are some of these stipulations actually causing me to think to myself, okay, well, I need to locate in the United States. I heard more of that banter prior to the deal being inked last December uh, because the uncertainty of not having a deal at all was far more of an incentive for people to say, hey, look, you know, I really need to locate in the United States. I can't take the risk of either being in Mexico or in Canada. And as it became clear that we were going to have a deal, uh, my sense is, and this is just anecdotal, but my sense is that that talk quietened down. Now, why was that the case? Well, the upper limits that were given on 
um, production of vehicles outside of the U.S. So the upper level criteria that were placed on both Canada and Mexico in the Canadian case were far greater than what anybody thought our annual vehicle production was going to be. And the same was true for the part side of things. So they weren't looked as being really binding in their restrictiveness. And so in a sense, those stipulations were not a disincentive to invest inside of Canada on a technical basis. And we'll have to see how that manifests itself in the behavior of uh, of firms and industries. But I do think, to get back to my initial point, that the, the whole COVID experience is changing the attitudes towards investment in a way that this sort of localization drive, uh, you know, it's it's probably going to be a North American thing, but it could be something of a detractor, I guess, uh, to uh, investment that was headed into Canada. Now, I, I will also say that we've got to keep an eye on our cost function for things like taxation uh, in the future and um, costs of uh, electricity and other energy and so forth. Uh, those things are all very important to a- attracting investment as well. So, you know, this this may affect it, but there are broader concerns as well. There is a, a list of categories in the automotive segment that has change greatly because let's face it um for example um not a lot of cars come with cd players or uh, am fm radios in the sense that they were in the 90s when the original nafta was signed so there's a lot more focus on technology in the car for example is there something in this deal that canadian companies or canadian suppliers can really take advantage of something that maybe wasn't there maybe is still fresh or new in the auto industry and presents an opportunity for Canada to sort of be a leader and and draw investment um, in new technology or green technology or electric vehicles. Well, the the there is a requirement, and I think it's well known inside of the industry that you know parts are not just parts anymore. There is more definition on those parts, and so the three broad categories really are core parts principal parts and complementary parts. And of course, uh, it's it's sent the industry scrambling to determine, okay, uh, which ones am I actually producing? Am I one of the three? Have I got elements of all three inside of my operation? How is that actually going to uh, uh, change my the way that I operate in terms of classifying these things and simplifying uh, what the perspective is uh, on on these? Uh, that's part of the burden, I guess, that uh, that firms are going to to have to bear uh, going forward. Um, technological change inside of the auto industry is um, massive at the moment. Um, and, you know, one of the great vulnerabilities, I think, of the North American industry is that uh, in percentage terms, our production of, of EVs and hybrids is far less than it is, let's say, in a place like China, which is becoming very dominant in terms of not necessarily the technology, but um, the actual attention that is being paid to the production of EVs and and the like. And uh, so the industry in itself is doing things at the moment, is launching out into different uh, areas that are redefining what a vehicle actually is. So these can be anchored inside of an agreement, but um, the exponential increase in technology 
really is sort of the leading edge of the definition of what a vehicle is going forward. And that's really where the future of the industry is and the perspective of many. I would share that view. And Canada having uh, clusters, uh, very significant clusters in the Cambridge, Kitchener, Waterloo area, in the increasingly in the Toronto area, uh, also, uh, Ottawa has its own nexus. And of course, Montreal has been working very hard at this. Vancouver has its own brand of this as well. You know, there are very significant locales uh, that have been working on solutions. And given the proximity of some of those centers to our automaking nexus, well, that's creating an advantage uh, there, as it were. As for uh, specific stipulations inside of uh, the USMCA uh, agreement uh, there. Um, I guess I'm not as uh, deeply into the text to know which ones uh, would be governing where those flows would actually be, but we're off to a great start uh, as it were, and uh, we already have a significant momentum in uh, in that area doing pretty wonderful things uh, as the industry comes together to work with the technology industry. We'll hear more from Peter Hall after this short break. The COVID-19 pandemic has had an unprecedented impact on the world's population and economy. Social distancing and self-isolation measures have taken consumers out of the auto retail market, while concern over worker safety continues in manufacturing facilities globally. An increasingly distressed supply base is facing the potential for large-scale liquidity issues, which may lead to increased M&A activity throughout the ecosystem. Significant uncertainty remains around the permanence of current consumer behaviors and the extent to which they will be able to re-engage with the sector. Through Deloitte's State of the Consumer Tracker series, we discuss timely data and trends and highlight key consumer insights. We also explore how behavioral preferences take shape over time to allow businesses to make strategic decisions in this dynamic market environment. The ongoing survey results are also available via an interactive dashboard, the Deloitte Global State of the Consumer Tracker. Check in every two weeks to explore new consumer insights and emergent trends. Welcome back to the show, where we are joined by Peter Hall, the Vice President and Chief Economist at Export Development Canada. Regarding COVID-19, in a recent piece you wrote that, and I'm quoting, the impact on exports by industry can be classified as bad, worse, and terrible, end quote. Which one of those best describes the automotive sector in Canada? Well, you nailed me to the wall on that one, Greg. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, because those, those are my own words. It, it's terrible when somebody uses your own words against you. But no, the facts actually speak for themselves. But before answering that question, I will say that it depends what year you're talking about. Uh, so that is a reference to the plunge. And certainly the 2020 numbers for the auto sector are among the worst anywhere. And this is not just a Canadian thing. We, we needn't beat up on ourselves unfairly. Uh, China itself, when it uh, sank into its lockdown, saw auto sales drop 80%. And that was a big shocker when it happened, of course, because that causes a an absolute, you know, uh, a jolt right through the entire supply chain in country. And and that's a very painful uh, exercise. Everything pretty much comes to a close or you're piling up inventories. You can't manage those. And as we saw this pandemic move from country to country, most countries' experience was a carbon copy of China's, you know, close to 80% drops in vehicle sales. 
And so um, we've seen that inside of Canada. We've certainly seen it in our exports. And so there are three industries that are in the 30% plus drop category for this year. And autos is the least scathed of those three, but autos uh, gets a minus, a big, ugly minus 30 for this year. Now, the good news is we step into 2021 and there's a 22% rebound. Now, that's not enough to get sales back to or international sales back to pre-COVID levels by the end of 2021. That's going to be a 2022 uh, event. Uh, so it is going to take a bit of a while, but that 22% increase is uh, good news to many, many producers uh, who fear the worst that you know we go down and we actually don't get out of this chasm. Well, see, this is why you're the expert and, and why I love chatting with you, because you answered my next question, which was going to be, what is your forecast for automotive going forward post-pandemic? So um, I, I did want to know where we were and where we were going. So you answered both in that question. I appreciate it. But I am curious, what changes might we see in the Canadian auto sector post-COVID-19? Is, the, is it in the supply chain? Are there more or fewer experts? Um, what's different in the Canadian automotive industry two or three or even five years out from now? If I'm allowed to speculate uh, a little bit on this, we are looking at some grand changes in the way that business is looking at things. Obviously, when you get hit with something that really is an existential crisis, I mean, some are not going to come out of the other end of this. And they might be well-run companies, but, you know, you can just imagine um, uh, a firm that decided to make a great big bet on a brand new upgraded facility, state-of-the-art and so forth, and they're deeply into their capital spending program or they've just completed it and their leverage ratios have gone way up and all of a sudden, you know, sales dry up to nothing. They've got no cash flow. They can't service this grand expansion that they have just done. Well, my heart goes out to them because they're doing the right thing. We were hitting capacity constraints. It's definitely the time to do this. It's a very competitiveness enhancing thing to uh, to be leading edge, to be, you know, one foot ahead of uh, perhaps the rest of the competition and so forth. And so it's not necessarily bad management that would leave a company uh, sort of out to dry at this point in time or vulnerable to a take over. And so, um, you know, this kind of crisis that hits an industry, regardless of the degree of crisis, gets everybody thinking. I've got an adage that has served me well right through a number of different economic cycles. During the regular growth phase of the business cycle, you know, necessity is the mother of invention. Something happens, a problem happens here, there, or everywhere, and we invent a solution for it. And it's a great fuel for innovation inside of the economy. Crisis isn't like that. Crisis isn't the mother of invention. Crisis is the mother of transformation. Uh, This is when the really big leaps actually occur. So what might be some of the things that we see happen to our auto industry going forward? Well, this whole globalization move uh, certainly, I think, has the wheels turning inside of the minds of the senior executives of, of our auto complex. And, and what I'm imagining them thinking, and some of my conversations uh, corroborate this, is, 
you know, if we are going to have to come closer uh, and we were we were going out into other economies to take advantage of lower labor costs, lower regulatory burdens and so forth. How do we actually um, repatriate those investments? How do we bring them home and do them economically? Well, technology hasn't been quiet over this period of time. So, you know, a, a second answer to your previous question would be, well, what would happen with technology? We now have the capability, a far greater capability of mechanizing our, our, our plants that are doing things for us. And, you know, we're running out of skilled labor. So it's not as if, you know, mechanizing would displace labor. It allows us to economize on the little amount of labor we actually have. So it's not a threat to labor to do this kind of thing. But here's the key. Capital costs are universally almost equivalent. So it's no cheaper to have a plant over in China full of robots doing stuff for you than it really is in southwestern Ontario or somewhere inside of Quebec that's uh, producing parts or what have you. Um, these these can be done quite economically that way. So if firms are thinking, okay, well, I need to bring it closer to home. I've got to secure my supply chains. How am I actually going to do that? I believe that we will see a greater capital intensity inside of what is already a capital intensive industry. Uh, now, that's not going to happen overnight because I'm sure everybody's having the same thought at the same time. It is going to take time to do this. But I do believe that um, those who are investing now are aware of the fact that labor is becoming scarce, not just in Canada, not just in the United States, but all over the world. Um, they need to reinvent the model. I do believe that that's one of the biggest things that is going to affect our industry in the next five years. Last question. As we look south to the United States, we see COVID-19 cases on the rise in some of the most populous states. Um, it the curve is not flattening um, as many would like it to. There is a danger of places locking down and shutting down again. We're starting to see it in places like Houston. Um, there was a dire warning recently in uh, uh, California in some of the counties there that things will need to shut down. How bad could it get for Canadian exporters if the U.S. economy has to go into varying degrees of stay-at-home orders, lockdowns, and, and therefore their economy takes a bit of a hit. How much does that affect us? It all depends, really, how, and I'm using that word again, it all it sounds like a, a great qualifier, but it really depends on um, the severity, you know, and how pervasive it is uh, going forward. We actually have embedded this into our forecast. As we've seen the COVID data globally, and how it has morphed uh, to the to the to the current day, um, uh, you know, these second wave infections are not uncommon. Uh, they happened in China. There was a second outbreak in Wuhan. They ring fenced that. They didn't shut down the whole economy, but they ring fenced that and said, "Okay, let's try to do containment here." I believe it happened in South Korea as well. Uh, it definitely happened in Japan, uh, where Japan, you know, was 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 writing the book on how to contain uh, something that all of a sudden they had to go into full shutdown of Tokyo. Um, we saw the same thing in Singapore, very, very well-regulated place. And uh, so they were happy with how things were going. They started reopening and uh, they had to uh, go into a second wave of, uh, of lockdown as well. So this isn't uncommon. What we're seeing in the United States is not uncommon. We could see the same thing inside of Canada. 
But what really matters here is the severity. You know, do we actually see a bounce back in the economy that um, can be sustained with a partial shutdown of parts where there are flare-ups? Now, the U.S.'s case is more extreme than all of the others. We haven't actually seen other nations uh, zoom back up to previous levels like we have seen in, in the U.S. And that is quite a concern at the moment, and containing that is going to be paramount going forward. So the OECD came out with a not a base case forecast, but an alternative where they said, you know, one of the things that we fear is that we're going to bounce back off the bottom here and then very quickly go back down again as we go into lockdown. Well, that ends up looking like a U-shaped forecast that then starts to play around with our psychology. You know, if you're down in the chasm for too long, um, you can get a little bit too used to being in the chasm and resign to the fact that, okay, well, maybe this is just a new normal. And when that language starts to creep up, we're all in a bit of trouble. Um, our forecast, by contrast, sees quite a rapid rebound in activity. And we've still got to see, you know, the late May through June data, which I believe in the United States, in Canada, in Western Europe was very robust, you know, to see uh, whether the OECD is right or whether our forecast is more accurate. We see a very rapid jump up and then a more modest uh, growth curve, um, uh, not you know, not flat by any stretch of the imagination, mm -hmm. still an aggressive rise, but not as aggressive as the original rise, taking us back up to those pre-COVID levels by the time we get to the end of 2021. Now, if it wasn't interrupted, we would be seeing those levels by the end of this year, beginning of next. So we've put a one-year delay into our forecast for this very reason. We do expect uh, second wave infections to occur and uh, to keep things down. We believe that the auto industry, uh, it was affected by, you know, lockdown in round one. It will also be affected by partial lockdowns. And so the road back takes some time. Let's leave it there and pledge to catch up uh, at the end of that road after what might be a second wave. And if there isn't one, we might be talking about how well we've rebounded and where we're going from there. Sound good? I sure look forward to that day, uh, Greg. All right. I appreciate it. Thanks for joining me, Peter. You're great as always. Much appreciated. My pleasure. Anytime. Okay. Have a good day. We reached Peter at his home in Ottawa. If you want to be a guest, have a suggestion, or simply want to comment on the show, email me at glason at autonews.com. And remember, you can listen to all our previous shows on Spotify, iTunes, and Google Play, or on our website, automotivenews.ca. That does it for this episode of Automotive News Canada Conversations. We hope you join us next time. So long, everybody.